special first ever episode of Music Mythos, I'm going to do something a little out of the ordinary, and I am going to take something off the table comedically. That being pedophilia. Not merely because I happen to consider pedophilia a serious issue, how perfectly reasonable stand-up comedians who consider pedophilia a major issue have still made reasonably humorous jokes about it. I was raised Catholic. I went to confession the other day. I said, you first. I'm not going to poke fun at pedophilia because Michael Jackson was not a pedophile. And it's half past fucking time someone had the nuts to publicly disassociate his name with that term. He wasn't innocent because he was a great dancer, because I idolized him as a musician and as a human being. Michael Jackson was innocent for evidentiary reasons that I will touch on around the time I review Invincible. The description has a timestamp table of contents, so if you must hear that rant right this moment, be my fucking guest, click on it right below. Without further delay, the man, the myth, the Michael fucking Jackson. Do you ever want to stop? No, don't stop till you get enough. You have had enough. <laughs> no way. No way. You make me feel like... Blasting off with the sublime symphonic disco of Don't Stop Till You Get Enough and not entertaining the notion of returning to Earth until the white-hot closer track Burn This Disco Out. Off the wall to many Michael Jackson fans is the only true musical rival to Thriller, and while that's not an opinion I personally share, it's not one with which I'd vehemently argue either. I hate disco like I hate Al-Qaeda, and even I love this album. That alone is the most glowing endorsement I can conceivably proffer. For me, the finest track on the album is the unrelenting, infectious groove of working day and night, a song characterized as much by the smooth, slick R&B as it is by hard-hitting, dance-oriented disco and the very first instance of the eternally blurred musical genre lines that would come to define Michael Jackson's music in the coming decades, a precarious tightrope that Michael effortlessly navigates from the opening note to the last, with his lone, albeit negligible, stumble finding form in forgettable fluff by the name of Girlfriend, a saccharine ballad whose lyrical inanity is matched only by its utter absence of musical hooks, filler in the fourth degree. In the overall, however, Off the Wall is easily one of Michael Jackson's most consistent excellent outings, and perhaps the strongest single album in the man's story discography full stop. While musically nowhere near as trend-setting and a far cry from the more forward-looking albums of his later career, Off the Wall stands tall as arguably the greatest disco record ever produced. Recommended without reservation. For no mere mortal can resist the evil of the decision to record a disco album in the genre's boom period of 1979 likely didn't entail much soul-searching. By the early 80s, it was abundantly clear to everyone that music was in need of a new commercial centerpiece. Disco had come and gone in record time, outstripped for speed of commercial descent only by New Wave, whose death rites were already being performed as early as 1981. 
Michael Jackson and music in general were in dire need of a new sound. With his feet firmly planted in funk, disco, soul, and R&B, who would have thought the seeds of contemporary pop that took full flower on Thriller would actually gestate within the fallow soil of rock and heavy metal. Michael Jackson, you see, was a massive fan of the hard rock band known as Queen. So big, in fact, that he was known to fanatically attend every concert they put on in the LA area, and after introducing himself to the band, became fast friends with frontman Freddie Mercury. Michael even went so far as taking a tour of Queen's studio where they were in the process of recording the game. He loved everything he heard, but it wasn't until playing him a track that the band weren't actually sure they were going to include on the record at all that he truly lit up. Another One Bites the Dust was a curious fusion of funk, disco, and balls-out rock and roll. The precise shot-in-the-arm popular music was in dire need of in the early 80s. Michael raved about the song, and against every other member of the band's wishes, he somehow managed to convince them to release the song, at which point it became Queen's highest charting single ever. Queen left the studio with their first and only number one hit in America, and Michael Jackson left knowing precisely what direction in which to steer his next album, one that would eventually become the highest charting, best-selling album in music history, a little thing you may have heard of called fucking Thriller. This album was a fucking spearhead, a musical watershed, almost single-handedly crafting the genre that today we identify as pop, a sleek, perpetually evolving fusion of R&B, rock and roll, funk and disco, and more to the point, these songs fucking rule. From the moment it opens with a black tar heroin addictive tune fellow gamers will be familiar with from the soundtrack to Grand Theft Auto Vice City, wanna be starting something, this album is catchiness overload. But as sobering a realization as it is, you don't get to be the best-selling album in history merely on the strength of your songs alone. Thriller affixed itself to the head of yet another zeitgeist, the recent arrival of a little thing called MTV. Crafting brilliantly shot and competently acted, choreographed, and directed mini-motion pictures that outstripped any other active music artist for sheer budget, brilliance, and scope, the unveiling of Michael Jackson's ambitious Thriller short film was a bona fide pop culture event, one that in spite of its own boundless hype managed to actually exceed expectations by a country-ass mile. Worst track, on the other hand, look, I can't bash anything on this record without receiving death threats, I'm well aware, but can we all admit in unison that the Paul McCartney collaboration, The Girl Is Mine, is probably single-handedly responsible for the early 80s rise in diabetes diagnosis? I don't just dislike, I overtly hate this fucking song, not merely because it's weaker than Starbucks, but because it's grating, giggly goofiness mars an otherwise perfect album, particularly that dick cheese speaking passage toward the end of the song. What in machine gun titties is that shit about? Who the fuck uses the phrase forever lover in casual conversation? Paul McCartney is a fucking geek, but despite his Angela Lansbury looking ass, Thriller set the world on fucking fire with over 300 million copies sold to date, and the hits just keep on coming as Michael and Quincy damn near swept the Grammy Awards the following year, netting every award from Album of the Year to Producer of the Year, ultimately walking away with eight of the some bitches, having shattered nearly as many records as he sold, the only operative question that remained was, how the fuck do you possibly follow this up without shit going... Bad? What y'all gonna dance us to dance? You gotta be kidding me. Go! 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 <laughs> All right.
right, just for that exceedingly lame pun, you're allowed to punch me directly in the nuts at least once. For all of its success, Thriller's post-album promotion was utterly bizarre. Instead of touring the album as a solo artist like absolutely anyone else in the world, Michael allowed himself to be talked into rejoining the Jackson 5 from 82 to 86, during the promotional tours for which nearly half of the set list consisted of material from Thriller, only fueling already seething resentment among his brothers and eventually leading to Michael resuming his solo career by 87, having only been momentarily interrupted. But just pause for a moment and consider the fact that Thriller, the biggest album of all time, did not have a promotional tour. Can you fucking conceive of how huge this album would have been with a proper world tour? I mean, Jesus, Tap Dancing Christ, Sonic the Hedgehog and a quintuple shot espresso couldn't have printed money fast enough. The good news, Michael re-entered the studio in 86 with a vengeance. The bad news? Much of that vengeance was directed at Quincy Jones. After a two-album collaboration that produced two of the biggest albums of all time, when the hour arrived to cut a third, relations between the two had deteriorated significantly, with Michael more enamored by rock, heavy metal, and a newly emerging form of dance music called New Jack Swing, and Quincy convinced a fledgling genre called rap was a direction for Mike to consider. As a result, as great as this album is, something about it just doesn't gel for me. Make no mistake, Bad isn't... Well, it isn't bad, if you'll forget the figure of speech, but whereas every song on Off the Wall felt as if it was part of a greater whole, crafted with painterly precision for the sole purpose of redefining disco, and Thriller was a unified effort to establish pop as a bona fide genre in the 80s, Bad, to me anyways, just kind of lacks cohesion in general. It sounds less like an album and more like a collection of well-written, well-performed, radio-ready singles. Look at the track list and actually listen to the songs, folks. Does the gritty pop rock of Bad sound like it has any business being anywhere near the vicinity of bubbly synthcraft like The Way You Make Me Feel? Hell, some of these songs sound like they belong on other records. Bad to me sounds like Michael's answer to Thriller. The unrepentant disco of Another Part of Me sounds like it was tailor-made for Off the Wall. The smooth baby-making R&B of uh, Liberian Girl to me, it sounds like a lost track from Dangerous. I mean, where is the fucking cohesion? And after Spike Lee's fascinating Bad 25 documentary, the impetus for this sonic inconsistency came into sharper focus for me. Apparently, during recording of Bad, Michael employed at least three teams of songwriters and musicians, like, simultaneously an A, B, and C team, respectively, each competing with the other to be featured on the record, the operative logic being that between the three competing groups of musicians, they would inevitably arrive at a superior result, and they did. The problem with this approach, however, is that from song to song, you're not only listening to a different song, often by a different songwriter, you're listening to a completely different band. Hence the vast musical disparity between Michael's first experiment with hair metal ballads, Dirty Diana, for example, and one of the album's uncontested standouts, Another Part of Me. As much as I happen to love the album, it does come off as a bit of an artifact of its time, particularly when compared to the seminal trailblazing records that preceded it. Whereas Off the Wall is the greatest disco album in history and Thriller is the first pop record in history, Bad is just... more Thriller. Better in some ways, and it has to be pointed out that on this album, Michael added a slight rock and roll scream to his vocal repertoire that would be instrumental to his later career, but on the whole, Bad lacks the unifying musical approach of his earlier and later output, an excellent collection of songs, but that's sort of it.
a middling recommendation, but there was nothing middling about what was to follow. And all I can remember is I'm in that room and it's me. And I said, man, I need somebody just and to hang out with me, man. Come on, man. And then Sally Richardson gives me a call. And she was like, you in the studio? I said, yeah. She said, I'm in New York. I said, ah, oh, come to the studio. She said, all right, I'm going to be here for a week. Could I hang out with you? You know, is it all right? I'm not going to be in your way. I say, you ain't going to be in my way at all. <laughs> You're going to be inspiration. 100%. And she came. She hung out with me. And that was my friend, you know. So th did she inspire any of the dangerous tracks that you produced? What? Do so, you remember the time that, that for Sally we Richardson. fell in love? That was for Sally Richardson. I can't let her get away. <laughs> That, those are all she drives me wow. <laughs> you see how I'm cutting you okay. off? Okay. Dangerous. Bad's resounding commercial success, albeit one dwarfed by the universe-altering musical paradigm shift of Thriller, Michael and Quincy Jones went their separate ways, the reasons for which are myriad, but if Bad felt like a somewhat safe follow-up to Thriller, we were at no risk of falling prey to that syndrome with Dangerous, far and away the most aggressive, distinctly urban, yet still quintessentially Michael release in the King of Pops discography, hiring a renowned producer and former guy frontman by the name of Teddy Riley, a man who effectively invented the new jack swing genre that was tearing through the charts from the late 80s to the early 90s. The album was also one of the more musically forward-looking albums of Michael's career. Of all his records, to me, when I listen to contemporary music, this is the album that has had the most profound musical influence on the future. Sure, Thriller's in there, even bad. Hell, even some of Michael's later materials had a profound influence on pop as a whole. Just wait till we get to Invincible. But the seamless pairing of R&B, soul, hard rock, heavy metal, and for the very first time, even full-on rap, with the rich, full vocal harmonies of gospel, gave Dangerous a sound that continues to be imitated, if never equaled, even in 2014. And unlike Bad, the entire album feels distinct and fairly uniform without suffering from the much maligned blending effect that would plague his latter-day output. Favorite track? A bit of a tie between the thunderous rhythmic stomp of the title track, Dangerous, and the merciless foray into full-blown hip-hop represented by Jam, a song that my fellow video gamers should find significant due to the fact that it betrays the true identity of that oft-rumored true composer for the soundtrack of Sonic 3 on the Sega Genesis. Although tribute simply must be paid to the unabashed baby-making music that is in the closet. And by baby-making, I mean it is an immutable scientific certainty that if you chuck this record onto your stereo, your girlfriend's panties will motherfucking disintegrate. unifying factor in all the aforementioned tracks, it is with the notable exception of the album closing title track that they form a solid block of classic R&B in the opening half of the album. Dangerous for all its virtues, and given that it's my single favorite Michael Jackson album, those virtues are fucking numerous, sadly also kicked off the latter-day MJ trope of top-heavy track listings. Long story short, first half, kick-ass. Second half, 
dialysis-inducing, circulation-halting, for the love of God, somebody get me a Kit Kat bar, diabetes balance, with some of the sappiest offenders taking shape as the trite triumvirate of Will You Be There, Gone Too Soon, and possibly the single most early 90s song ever recorded, Heal the World. Remember, folks, this was 1991, the same year as Hands to Heal, and just a few years removed from the unbridled gimmickry that was Hands Across America. In short, the early 90s was when rich, fat-ass white people sang saccharine ballads about starving kids in Africa to assuage their Caucasian liberal guilt. Reason number 5 billion and 71 why the 90s devoured raw cock. Failings aside, Dangerous is the finest record of Michael Jackson's career and is widely considered to be his final classic album. That it also happened to be the last output to be released without the public stigma of the fallacious 1993 child abuse allegations is no fucking coincidence. Yeah, you can parrot the age-old, but if he was innocent, why did Michael pay off the family standard? But okay, even if we concede that as being valid, despite the fact that not Michael, but his insurance company insisted on paying the family off, consider this. What does it say about a family if they're willing to put a $25 million price tag on their juvenile son's anal virginity, knowing that if they had any discernible physical or even circumstantial evidence, they could likely walk away in court with an identical, if not even greater, dollar amount, along with the opportunity to put a man they claim is a hardened pedophile behind bars, theoretically sparing other children from similar treatment in the process. If that sounds cockeyed, you're wrong. It was uncut black tar bullshit. And we'll get to just how indescribably bullshit shortly. A commercial and critical improvement over bad, an infinitely more musically diverse effort than Thriller or Off the Wall, dangerously underrated. <laughs> the video game parallels just keep right on coming as we hit the guitar solo for the second song on this album, the otherwise utterly mediocre They Don't Care About Us. I sincerely wish that were the last time I could utter the word plagiarism in conjunction with history, but sadly, in 2007 it was discovered that You Are Not Alone, arguably one of Michael's most successful ballads ever, was in fact plagiarized from a song by two Belgian musicians. Consequently, R. Kelly, who wrote the song in question, presumably between underage groupie deflowerings, lost all rights to the song. Sadly, this court decision is only recognized in Belgium, where the song is justifiably banned from radio play. Musical mimeography notwithstanding, history's most malignant growth by far is the simple fact that it lacks a consistent producer that is not Jackson himself. Off the wall, Thriller and Bad benefited from Quincy Jones' unparalleled musical instincts. Dangerous was a masterpiece thanks to a dual production effort from MJ and Teddy Riley, and the character of later albums would be significantly enhanced by those collaborative relationships. But 
History represents Michael Jackson's sole attempt to date to produce an album entirely by himself. And with the exception of one or two rousing moments, the duet with his sister Janet on Scream, for example, the overwhelming majority of the material sounds like cutting room leftovers from the Dangerous Sessions. The peak of this album, for me anyways, comes in the form of Tabloid Junkie, one of Michael's most damning indictments of shameless drama queen gossip mongers, with particular attention paid to Great Britain's gallingly farcical attempts at celebrity journalism, a cancer that lamentably continues to fester unabated in 2014. As for the worst moment, I'll give you a hint. There's two of them. They both involve fucking rap, and perhaps most appallingly of all, at least one of them involves Shaquille fucking Neal. Look, I'm not anti-rap. Public Enemy and Early Digital Underground is the shit, but casting Michael Jackson in the role of rapper is like making Martha Stewart a fucking b-boy, and asking Shaquille O'Neal to rap is like asking Shaquille O'Neal to rap. Too bad, more of a descriptor than a song title. Fucking desist, Michael. With the proper musical critique out of the way, I suppose we can't put this off any longer. Seeing as Invincible is the last album to release before the molestation trial of 2005 and Jackson's eventual death. Never mind that a jury of his peers found him innocent. Why don't I believe Michael Jackson was a pedophile? <laughs> I don't doubt the 1993 and 2005 child abuse allegations merely because I don't think he could ever harm a child because I've never met the cat. Who knows? Maybe he could. It's because of what I see and, most importantly, what I don't see. What I see is Michael Jackson, by 2005 a bona fide titan of business, at that point literally owning one half of Sony Music Publishing and reaping a windfall of royalties thereby, a man who owns the two most profitable music catalogs in existence and is fighting to own the third most, that being his own. For all his projected naivete, you don't find yourself in that position without being two things, shrewd and calculating. Michael Jackson could be childlike for a fact, but when the chips were down, this is a man who learned how to moonwalk in 79, knowing full well the move was electric and could catapult him into superstardom, yet purposefully didn't break it out publicly until 1982, when the Motown anniversary provided him with a captive, televised audience to visually introduce his first single from Thriller, Billie Jean. This is a man who managed to secure Paul McCartney's blessing to acquire the Beatles and Elvis catalogs and jeté that into 50% ownership in arguably the largest record label on the planet. Perhaps more applicably, look at how Michael Jackson behaved when it was actually time for him to break the law. When he wanted to illegally anesthetize himself with propofol, he found Conrad Murray, a doctor with financial problems and a checkered past. In short, someone he could fucking manipulate. Someone he had leverage on. Six successfully covering his tracks quite literally until after his death in fear of the minor fine and possible community service sentence that would result from being convicted of such. But the Chandler and Arvizo families want us all to believe that when it came time for Michael Jackson to deflower a child, a crime that could put him away for the remainder of his life and ruin his entire career in the process, his master plan boiled down to, hey, hop on the bed in full view of your brother and we'll jerk each other off. Can't imagine why he was fucking acquitted. You wanna know what pedophilia looks like in the entertainment industry? Well, ask people who have been victims of it. Corey Feldman, for example, who is friends with and actively defended Michael Jackson from the spurious allegations, sadly was molested by actual pedophiles in Hollywood. His description of their behavior sounds considerably closer to the mark than what Michael was accused of. There was a circle of older men that surrounded themselves around this group of kids. 
and they all had either their own power or connections to great power in the entertainment industry. There's one person to blame in the death of Corey Haim, and that person happens to be a Hollywood mogul, and that person needs to be exposed, but unfortunately I can't be the one to do it. But the person that knows who did it and knows who he is is watching right now, I guarantee you. Hmm. You know, there's a lot of good people in this industry, but there's also a lot of really, really sick, corrupt people in this industry. And there are people in this industry who have gotten away with it for so long that they feel they're above the law. Hmm. And that's got to change. That's got to stop. So wait, B-list Hollywood moguls are astute and tactically minded enough to cull their targets from vulnerable families, acquire enough leverage to ensure the family's silence in perpetuity, and then sexually exploit a child. But Michael Jackson, with a documented genius-level IQ and demonstrable brilliance in committing lesser criminal offenses, figures the safest route is to ply a kid with Jesus juice and fuck him in the butt with other children present. Yeah, seems legit. I submit that given Michael's provable tactical acumen, not to mention financial resources, if he ever actually had diddled the kid, we wouldn't have ever heard one mumbling fucking word about it. The fact that there even was a trial is to me almost proof enough that Michael Jackson never inappropriately laid a hand on a kid in his life. And I sincerely wish MJ's detractors were equally fanatical about bringing confirmed pedophiles like Roman Polanski to long overdue justice. Not only do I not believe Michael Jackson was a pedophile, I don't believe he was gay either. There's story upon story upon story from producers, family, and confidants about Michael Jackson macking with groups groupies and limousines, bringing hot bitches to the recording studio, and moreover, the dude railed Lisa Marie Presley circa 1995. I'm not oblivious to the fact that your fans had one question they most wanted to ask of you. Do we have sex? We have... You, <laughs> you, <laughs> she didn't ask. She I didn't ask. ask. I won't ask. Okay, you don't know what it go was going to be. Is that what you were going to ask? Look, this is about hmm. the skepticism. Yes, I, yes, yes. And on the subject of Lisa Marie Presley circa 95, I would like to issue the following statement. Mm. Mm. That bitch's ass was tighter than the skin on Bruce Jenner's cheeks. There ain't a god angry enough with a fist large enough to adequately convey how hard I would hit it. And Michael Jackson did. Case closed. Michael called me on the phone. He says, is this Chris Tucker? I said, yeah, who it is? This is Michael Jackson. I said, what's up, Mike? He said, I just want to call you and tell you I've seen your movie Rush Hour 2 and you're kicking with the wrong leg. Stop making me look bad. albums in the Jackson catalog, Invincible has risen in my estimation the most. So great has been the qualitative appreciation, in fact, that at this point I can say without reservation that after Dangerous, this would likely be my second favorite offering from the King of Pop, but it was a long fucking journey for Invincible to take its place from trash bin to mantelpiece. And I have to confess to deeply misunderstanding the album upon its initial release. What I initially found grating and antiseptic about what I construed to be overproduction with the benefit of hindsight is now patently obvious was in fact the sound of Michael Jackson sticking his claim as one of the pioneers in a musical genre that at the time didn't even have a name. You, however, might know it, for bad or for worse, as dubstep.
I think the musical talent threw me off. If Dangerous is most easily identifiable in the sonic hallmarks of contemporary R&B, then Invincible is proven beyond reproach as a visionary album that materialized nearly a full decade ahead of its time. I mean, go ahead, read a review of Invincible from 2001. You will laugh your nuts off as music critics of yore labor away for paragraph upon laborious paragraph, bemoaning all those sampled beeps and boops that this same hypocritical assloads would be praising hacks like Skrillex and Deadmau5 for implementing seven fucking years after the fact. Fuck you very much, music journalism. The only slide against Invincible that genuinely bothers me as a listener is the latter-day Michael Malley of having way too many fucking guest stars on his albums, a trend that would sadly subsist until well after his death. Look, having people like Heavy D and Slash on Dangerous, Stevie Wonder and Steve Stevens on Bad, Paul McCartney on Thriller, these guest appearances were impactful but sparing enough to enhance the record in question without detracting from the overall. But somewhere around, let's say, History, Michael got way too grabby with the guest stars. Shaq, Notorious B.I.G., his sister Janet, Carlos Santana, R. Kelly, Tyrese, and of course perennial fill-in guitarist Slash. Look, one or two dashes of collaborative mojo per record is more than enough to confound the onset of musical monotony. Any more than that, and it simply ceases to sound like a Michael Jackson album, which is what I fucking purchased! Invincible is unbalanced, often indulgent, and consequently far from perfect, but while regarded as a safe album at the time of its release, Invincible has proven to be quite possibly the single most forward-looking release of the man's career. Light years ahead of its time, and most assuredly worth a second appraisal. <laughs> So I'm leaving Sony a free agent, um, owning half of Sony, and I'm leaving them, and they, they're very angry at me because of it, but um, so the way they get revenge is to try and destroy my album. But with that case closed, yet another opened. If you've ever wondered why my hatred of Sony burns so intensely, the actions that followed were, in my opinion, flagrantly corrupt, morally bankrupt, and intentionally engineered to weaken Michael's commercial position to make him a motivated seller for those Elvis and Beatles catalogs they wanted so badly. Allow me to elucidate. The ownership of Michael Jackson's musical library was stipulated to revert back to Michael himself in, I believe, around the year 2001. But after some vague legalese horseshit, Michael learned to his dismay the transfer wouldn't take place for another half decade. And then he learned the attorney that represented him in the negotiations at no point found it prudent to inform Michael that he was also, in fact, representing Sony. And then Sony stopped promoting Invincible. As in, at all. Which wasn't suspicious at all, considering if the album flopped, it would leave Michael Jackson even more financially vulnerable, and therefore more motivated to sell his musical catalog to fucking Sony! Beginning to get the full picture here, folks? Despite the fact that they'd shelled out $30 million to produce the single most expensive album ever made, even today... After being caught red-handed trying to illegally acquire Michael's musical libraries, there was one music video and not one other promotional item after that, with Sony claiming they simply couldn't possibly promote it if Michael wouldn't conduct the world tour, which easily triples Sony's asshole quotient in my book, because after an opening night on September 10th, 2001, to kick it off, the tour was canceled for... Wait for it. 
9-11, Sony, patron saint of blithering fanboys the world over, wanted Michael Jackson to show the entire world shocking disrespect and insensitivity while conducting a world tour in support of this album before the fucking debris had stopped smoldering. And then there was Sony's curious silence during the 2005 child abuse allegations. You mean to tell me Randy Travis can be convicted of fully new DUI and his Christian gospel record label still has the nuts to defend him, but Sony couldn't speak in defense of the first and greatest pop star that ever lived? Well, that doesn't seem like a convenient ploy to weaken him commercially and soften him up for an eventual buyout. And yes, in case you're having difficulty reading the culpability flowchart, that makes Sony directly fucking complicit in Michael Jackson's death. If Michael Jackson was shot in the streets, Sony might not have pulled the trigger, but they sure as fuck walked away, only to eventually return and loot his moldering corpse, of course. And a sad epilogue to this story is that in the wake of Michael Jackson's death, Sony essentially got exactly what they wanted. Even before his death, Michael went from owning half of Sony to a third, and finally just one quarter, all in an attempt to pay off debts stemming from child abuse allegations that Sony, rather conveniently, never once made a concerted effort to debunk or deny. Look, there's no conspiracy about it, guys. It's simple numbers. Invincible was the single most expensive album ever made. They could either promote it properly and rake in a large profit that would ultimately be dwarfed by comparison to what they stood to make long-term if they acquired the Beatles catalog, or they could sit back, do nothing, and allow the king of pop to twist in the wind, ripening him for an eventual buyout. Sony stood to benefit more financially from a powerless, increasingly irrelevant, and ultimately deceased Michael Jackson than as a living, breathing, and thriving superstar that initially signed to their company in the first place. The next time you beat it raw to your PS4, don't delude yourself about the company you're fucking supporting. Michael Jackson may have dealt with its problems in the wrong way, but Sony made premeditated attempts at every turn to cultivate and ultimately reap a financial harvest from creating and nurturing that laundry list of problems. As such, it is an irrefutable fact that Sony helped kill the greatest entertainer that ever lived, and they did it for a paycheck. Fuck Sony and fuck their fanboys. She's talked that that's not clean. She's headed for the big time. That means she's going Hollywood. She's going Hollywood tonight. She's As you are all no doubt well aware, Michael Jackson passed from this world and into legend in the spring of 2009 while in the midst of orchestrating what would have been one of the most spectacular comebacks in the history of music. I remember watching the This Is It announcement live online and thinking this is his chance. The ground was fertile for 80s music in 09. Lady Gaga, who is and always will be a shameless throwback to theatrically-minded pop stars of the 80s, was exploding in popularity at the time, and artists like Michael Jackson were enjoying a renaissance in the relevance of their back catalog as a result. Capitalizing on this, Michael re-released a 25th anniversary edition of Thriller, and given that I was working in a record store at the time, I saw firsthand how this fucking thing flew off the shelves. Michael Jackson was almost back, and then in an instant, he was gone. But the music he recorded for the long-overdue follow-up to Invincible subsisted. The lightning rod of Michael Jackson's discography struck just one year after his death. Ostensibly a compilation album, 2010's Michael is comprised of roughly a 60-40 split between material that would have comprised the King of Pop's long-awaited return to the music industry after a near decade of absence, and a small handful of table scraps called from earlier periods of his career. Before we plumb the depths of controversy, let's dissect it as a musical work, and taken as such, it suffers to an almost cartoonish degree from the self-same issue that held Invincible back from achieving classic status. In short, 
ditch the fucking guest stars, particularly when taking the lead is fucking Akon, a man whose last album woefully underperformed, but who by 2008, when this collaboration was recorded, was rapidly fading into irrelevance. It had been seven fucking years since the last proper album, so give us a Michael fucking Jackson album. Not Michael Jackson featuring every washed up hip-hop, pop, and rap star of the late 90s and early 2000s, from 50 Cent to fucking Lenny Kravitz. You don't need these two-bit jabronis, they need you. Though I will concede that the Kravitz-MJ collaboration, I Can't Make It Another Day, represents without question Michael's most potent mixture of metal, rock, and R&B since the thunderous rock anthem Give In To Me from the Dangerous album. Indeed, when Michael does live up to its namesake, it comports itself with trademark MJ style. From Hollywood Tonight to breaking news to an artifact actually culled from, I believe, the thriller sessions, the insta-classic Behind the Mask, replete with gratuitous 80s saxophone solo, goddammit! Is Michael worthy of inclusion in the classic pantheon of thriller, dangerous, off-the-wall, and bad? Let's be honest, it probably doesn't make that cut. But as a flawed but funky return to form for Michael Jackson, it's on par if not slightly ahead of the frankly incredible Invincible album, if for no other reason than it cuts the fuck down on the sappy ballads. Cavorting with controversy from day one, it goes without saying the 2010's Michael critically and commercially underperformed, which is probably justified given how Sony, who signed perhaps the most greedy, exploitative record deal extension in history with Michael's estate after his death, scrambled to release it before the post-death MJ hype of 2009 had dissipated entirely. Sony as such made the first wise decision in the entirety of their relationship with the Michael Jackson catalog, took a deep, bracing breath of horrifically polluted Japanese air, and actually took their time in producing the follow-up. When 2014's Escape came writhing into existence that May, it was abundantly clear they'd made the correct choice. Escape is not only the best posthumous album of the Michael Jackson catalog, I'm mortified to admit it's the best record bearing the King of Pops moniker since fucking Dangerous. This is a lights-out, laser-focused album that marries variety and modernity, plumbing the vaults of the deceased pop icon and emerging with eight tracks that had no business being on the cutting room floor. And sadly, it proves me correct on the subject of Michael's isolation, and perhaps even inebriation. If by 1999, MJ was too high, distant, or lacked the broader musical context to see that the titled track, Escape, was superior to anything on the fucking Invincible album it was originally recorded for, then Michael Jackson simply had no fucking clue what his fans actually wanted from him. Never mind being included on Invincible. How the fuck was this song and several other standouts like Slave to the Rhythm left off of the Michael album? You mean to tell me before his death, Michael Jackson thought a banal ballad like Hold My Hand was objectively superior to fucking Slave to the Rhythm? Are you shitting me? Escape is utterly superb, and perhaps most sobering of all, I think it's superb in no small part due to the fact that for the first time since Thriller, 
Michael Jackson wasn't perpetually peering over the producer's shoulder, second and third guessing every tweak of the EQ until he talked himself into chucking half the awesomeness out with the bathwater. It's a shame that Sony, a company indirectly culpable for his death, continues to accrue financial benefit from someone who, like any rational consumer, despised the living shit out of them. But at least in the case of Escape, in a musical sense, they've proven to be devout custodians of the Michael Jackson legacy. Recommended without reservation. Well, it's been fun, folks. Thanks for moonwalking along with me in this comprehensive career retrospective of the King of Pop, Michael Jackson. This has been a very special episode of Music Mythos. I'm Razor Fist. God fucking speed. Hooter! <laughs>